Welcome to Music for Life, exploring the purpose and value of music to humanity's enrichment. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is the third movement of the Piano Sonata No. 2 by Frédéric Chopin, a four-movement work in total and played here in a recording by Maurizio Pollini. The tempo of this movement is marked Marche Funèbre, or Funeral March. It has become the iconic sound, if you will, for funeral music, being used even at the state funerals of Sir Winston Churchill, John F. Kennedy, Margaret Thatcher, and even at the burial of Frédéric Chopin himself. Today on Music for Life, we are going to explore the bevy of compositions inspired by the memory of the deceased or by death in general. And you are in for an absolutely exquisite episode. I hope you find it even stirring and inspiring, as even this movement of Chopin's sonata isn't all sullen and gloomy, but full of tenderness and hope, which you will hear in the lesser-heard middle section of this movement. And I'll play a fair bit of that section here in this introduction. In our Sounds of Scripture segment, we will explore the biblical record's various references to funeral music or music inspired by humanity's mortality. And in our Classroom Corner, we will discuss how we make the great composers of history come alive in a classroom of young children here at our Imperial Academy of Edmund. All this and more on today's episode of Music for Life, which I had to title Music for Death. The most certain thing in life is death, and though it often comes with sadness and loss, I don't intend for this episode to be one that dwells on that, rather one that looks at the silver lining of death, that is, all the great compositions that are the result of this unwavering aspect of human existence. Before we get into some of these specific examples of the standard repertoire, let's have our Sounds of Scripture segment where we survey the Bible's many references to music for a longer sweeping historical perspective on our episode's theme. The Bible records two major compositions that were written as elegies on the death of a prominent individual. One was written by King David himself over the death of his predecessor Saul and Saul's son Jonathan. The other was written by the prophet Jeremiah over the death of Judah's king Josiah. 
The composers of both were huge proponents of the musical arts in their day. Jeremiah's lamentation shows not only his musical prowess, but a certain detail about his funeral dirge shows us how much Josiah had earned the respect of the musicians of his day. Looking at this latter example first, King Josiah was a young, just, and righteous king. In fact, a specific prophecy about Judah's destruction was said to be held off until after Josiah's death. Given their king's youth, the people of Judah felt this put their nation's destruction far off. So when Josiah died prematurely on the battlefield, not even having reached 40 years of age, the nation was shocked and sent into unparalleled mourning for the death of the king and for the inevitable doom of their nation. An interesting verse about the lamentation for this king is found in 2 Chronicles 35.25, and it reads, And Jeremiah lamented for Josiah, and all the singing men and the singing women spoke of Josiah in their lamentations to this day, and made them an ordinance in Israel. And behold, they are written in the lamentations. This verse is rich with meaning. First, notice that Josiah was such a patron of the musical arts that the Bible says the musicians in particular mourned greatly for him. These lamenting songs were an ordinance in Israel, it says, and written in the Lamentations. In his book, Music in Ancient Israel, Alfred Sendry writes that it was a song that they sang year after year. But notice the phrase of that verse, Jeremiah lamented for Josiah, which is followed by the word and. So because Jeremiah lamented for Josiah, the musicians had a piece to perform year after year, and the chronicler tells us that this piece was written in the Lamentations. There is no reason to doubt that the funeral dirge Jeremiah wrote for the singing men and women that was written in the Lamentations is in fact the Old Testament book of Lamentations. Lamentations 4, verses 19 to 20, clue us into that as well. It reads, Our persecutors are swifter than the eagles of the heaven. They pursued us upon the mountains. They laid wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the anointed of the Lord, was taken in their pits, of whom we said, Under his shadow we shall live among the heathen. The anointed of the Lord was the breath of the nation, it says. When he was taken away, the nation was doomed to great calamity, the prophecy said. Josiah's death started a chain of events, in fact, that led to the fall of Jerusalem, the destruction of the first temple, and the captivity of Judah. Now, over four centuries earlier, another great patron of the arts and a musician himself, the famous David, would write one of the greatest elegies recorded in the biblical record and arguably in history. Upon hearing the death of King Saul and the death of David's closest friend, Saul's son, Jonathan, 2 Samuel 1.17 states that David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. The next verse says, Also he bade them teach the children of Judah the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. A few details to note here. At the new King David's request, this elegy became a national anthem of sorts, at least for the tribe of Judah. The name of this song was apparently The Bow. That appears to be some sort of title here. And it says it also is recorded in the book known as the Book of Jasher. But the following verses also record the lyrics of this song. We're going to listen to a rendition of this that we did here at Armstrong Auditorium in an original musical about King David. This song is called The Bow, and it is a poetic rendition of these lyrics. 
Later in the song, you will hear the people's proclamation of loyalty to David, their new king, and I will fade it out at that point. So this piece is in two parts, the second being more hopeful and honoring of the new king. But the first part is an elegy or funeral dirge on the death of Saul and Jonathan. The repeated refrain, the main phrase of this portion of the song, is a phrase of text that has become quite well known in the English language today. How are the mighty fallen? This has been Sounds of Scripture. How the mighty have fallen, fallen in the fray. How their weapons have vanished, and their shields are cast away.
I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is KPCG, and today's episode of Music for Life is titled Music for Death, and in it we are exploring this silver lining of death, all these compositions that were inspired by the memory of the deceased or by death in general, some exquisite music. That was The Bow, a song from an original stage production here at Armstrong Auditorium about King David, and that was David's famous elegy on the death of Saul and Jonathan, and it closed out our Sounds of Scripture segment. As we start our journey through standard music history, a composition that comes to mind in the Baroque era would be that of the English composer Henry Purcell. His famous Music for the Funeral of Queen Mary was written in honor of Mary II after her death in 1694. I want to play the second of seven movements in this suite. Each movement alternates between an instrumental and vocal work. This second movement is the chorus that utilizes these words from Job 14, 1-2. Man that is born of a woman hath but a short time to live, and is full of misery. He cometh up and is cut down like a flower. He fleeth as it were a shadow, and ne'er continues in one stay. Here is the Monteverdi Choir and Orchestra under John Elliot Gardner.
the gorgeous second movement out of seven total from Henry Purcell's Funeral Music for Queen Mary, written for the funeral of Queen Mary II after her death in 1694. We heard the Monteverdi Choir and Orchestra under John Eliot Gardner. That employs text from the Book of Job about humanity's mortality. Another kind of composition written in honor of the deceased is a requiem, a piece of music written to commemorate someone's death. And that leads us into the classical era and one of the most famous requiems written because the composer himself died during the process of writing it. The composer was a 35-year-old Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. The piece is said to have been commissioned by a Count von Walsig, who apparently wanted to pass off the work as his own to commemorate the death of his wife. But only after completing about two-thirds of the work's material, Mozart died in the early morning of December 5, 1791. The last words he set to his music were, that day of tears and mourning. In the Lacrimosa movement, an exquisitely beautiful work that I've played on this program before, and we know that one of Mozart's students helped to finish that composition. For a little change of pace, I want to play the fiery Dies Irae movement, or Day of Wrath. This is a recording of Sir Neville Mariner conducting the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields Orchestra and Chorus. That was the fiery Dies Irae movement from Mozart's Requiem, a work commissioned to honor the memory of a Count's late wife and a work that was never completed by Mozart as he ironically died while writing it. We heard the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields Orchestra and Chorus under Sir Neville Mariner. That was an example from the classical era. 
So we've heard music intended for two formal funeral services, you could say, with the works of Purcell and Mozart, but oftentimes composers would dedicate certain instrumental compositions or movements within those compositions to the memory of someone deceased. In this era, that was the case with Ludwig van Beethoven's third symphony, the Eroica or Heroic Symphony. The second movement is titled Funeral March, and it is only speculated whom it is about. At any rate, the music is reminiscent of the state funerals in Paris at the time. This movement explores feelings of grief, particularly the oboe solo. This was written around the time that Beethoven began to lose his hearing, an ordeal that obviously caused him a great deal of anguish. I only have time to play a short portion of this, and this is in a recording by John Elliott Gardner conducting the Orchestra Révolutionnaire et Romantique. You are listening to Music for Death on Music for Life. I'm Ryan Malone. This is KPCG. Today we are exploring this silver lining of death, if you will, compositions inspired by the memory of the deceased or by death in general. We just heard some of the second movement of Beethoven's Eroica Symphony, or Symphony No. 3, conducted by John Elliott Gardner with the Orchestra Revolutionnaire et Romantique. And that movement is marked Funeral March, and it explores the feelings of grief associated with death and loss. Death in the Bible is commonly referred to as sleep which makes sense because of continuous references in the Bible to resurrections. The fact that music, which is dedicated to the memory of the dead, is called a requiem even seems fitting, as that word is Latin for rest. And no requiem captures this hopeful view of death, other than Brahms's requiem, I believe, based not on liturgy that includes prayers for the dead or to the dead, but based rather on biblical passages about the resurrection. Some say Brahms's requiem was the first written not for the dead, but for the living. The first of its seven movements open with the phrase, Blessed are they who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Thank you. 
The second and third movements discuss the frailty and temporary nature of human life, and I've actually played some of the fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh movements on this program, and I simply don't have time to play any more of this luscious first movement. Another famous requiem of the Romantic era, and one that was quite a contrast to Brahms's, was that of Giuseppe Verdi. Verdi dedicated this work to the memory of a writer he admired by the name of Alessandro Manzoni. Now, I've also played some of the ferociously stormy sections of this work. Some have said that, whereas Brahms's requiem was meant to comfort the living, Verdi's was meant to frighten them. I want to play a portion of the final movement that is stripped down to no instruments, just soprano and unaccompanied chorus. They sing about rest, or requiem, and lux perpetua, or perpetual light. This was actually a portion of Verdi's requiem used at Princess Diana's funeral in 1997, and this section certainly didn't frighten the living. They performed it because Verdi was her favorite composer. Here it is performed by soprano Cheryl Studer and the Vienna State Opera Chorus. That was soprano Cheryl Studer and the Vienna State Opera Chorus in that excerpt of the final movement of Verdi's Requiem. Most of the examples I've played on this episode works inspired by this idea of death, the afterlife, or the memory of the deceased have been far from dreary and gloomy. 
However, the next example is going to move in that direction, and I think you'll see why it could be no other way. I'm speaking of the Kinder Toten Lieder, or the Dead Children Songs by Gustav Mahler. This is a song cycle, or set of songs, based on the poetry of Friedrich Rückert, a poet who suffered the loss of two of his own children to scarlet fever. Rückert actually wrote 428 poems on this subject, a massive and prolific expression of grief. For some reason, Mahler was drawn to set five of these poems to music. Some say it was because he'd had his own brush with death and mortality after some serious health problems. But not only that, eight of his siblings had died during childhood, so I think you can see why he was drawn to these poems. He began the set in 1901, took a break for a couple of years, and resumed in 1904, just two weeks after the birth of his own second child. Setting these poems to music really upset Mahler's wife, Alma. She was afraid her husband was tempting providence, as she said. The sad coincidence is that four years after he finished the set, that daughter died of scarlet fever. Mahler wrote to a colleague, I placed myself in the situation that a child of mine had died. When I really lost my daughter, I could not have written these songs anymore. You will hear the continuous use of the glockenspiel depicting a childlike sort of death knell behind the singer. You can, of course, hear the tragedy interwoven throughout the entire work, but you can also hear the imagery of light suggesting Mahler's strong belief in an afterlife. And the first of these songs is what I'd like to play here. It even mentions light in the text. A translation of the German text reads, Now the sun wants to rise so brightly as if no catastrophe happened during the night. The tragedy happened to me alone. The sun, it shines on everyone. You must not shut up the night inside you. Must immerse it in eternal light. A little lamp went out in my tent. Greetings to the joyous light of the world. This is mezzo-soprano Dame Janet Baker singing with the Halle Orchestra under Sir John Barbaroli.
That was mezzo-soprano Dame Janet Baker in the gut-wrenching first song of Gustav Mahler's five-song cycle known as Kinder Totenlieder, or Dead Children's Songs. And we are discussing music written to acknowledge the most certain thing in life, death. And Gustav Mahler was a composer from the late Romantic era. Now, it's worth noting here, though, that in the Romantic era, death was not just something dark and sobering, but also something that was extremely, well, romanticized. First, understand that death touched people's lives arguably more in that period than it does today. Mothers died in childbirth more often. Uh, Children died more often. And on the subject of death in general, artists saw it as less of something final, but more something as a passage, just as death in nature leads to a rebirth, say the passage from say, the passage from winter to spring or nighttime to daytime. This is embodied in Richard Strauss's 1889 tone poem for large orchestra titled Death and Transfiguration. There are four distinct parts to the work which depicts an artist's death. The first part is about a sick man nearing death. The second is about the battle between life and death, offering no respite for the man. The third is about the dying man's life passing before him, his childhood innocence, the struggles of his manhood, the attainment of his worldly goals. And then finally, in the fourth part, he receives the sought-after transfiguration. So the end of this 27-minute work is quite hopeful, as you can hear in this recording by James Levine and the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra.
That was Music for Life After Death, the transfiguration section of Richard Strauss's epic tone poem depicting, as the title describes, Death and Transfiguration. We heard James Levine conducting the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra in those final minutes of that work. As we move now into the modern era and discuss music written on the subject of death or the memory of the deceased, we come to a richly beautiful art song by British composer Gerald Finzi. This sets a Shakespearean passage of text about death from the play Twelfth Night. It is uttered by a man who wants to die for his uncaring love, and Finzi captures that spirit in this dirge-like setting of Shakespeare's text. This is from the set Let Us Garlands Bring, which I've played another portion of on our episode honoring Shakespeare. Here is baritone Bryn Turfel in just a portion of this luscious elegy. Come away, come away. So that was a little of Gerald Finzi's setting of Shakespeare's text, Come Away Death, in a more somber setting about death. Let's move on now to something a bit more hope-filled, and for that we go to another Requiem. This is one by the living British composer John Rutter, whom we discussed a lot in our episode on the choir. He is well known for his Requiem. This seven-movement work stands as one of the most popular compositions written in the last 30 years. In an interview, Rudder stated that his father's death in 1983 and that time of sadness in his life was a major factor in what drove him to write this work. Rudder said, I suppose death is one of the great universals that sooner or later we all experience bereavement and loss, and when people listen to a requiem, they're weaving their own thoughts and memories and experiences into the music and the words that they hear. Both the Pia Jesu movement and the opening movement, Requiem Eternam, are considered by many as highlights of the work, but I want to play you my favorite movement, the Sanctus movement, which is based on the Seraphim's majestic Holy, Holy, Holy song in Isaiah 6. Here is a recording by the choir of Clare College, Cambridge, with the City of London Symphonia.
That was the choir of Clare College, Cambridge, with the City of London Symphonia, performing the Sanctus Benedictus movement from the Requiem by John Rutter. Today on Music for Life, we have been discussing compositions inspired by death or the memory of the deceased. That popular work of our day was inspired by the death of the composer's father in 1983. Next, let's have our Classroom Corner segment, where we explore different methods and curricula for introducing young people to music. Today, we will discuss how we make the great composers who lived and died a long time ago relevant and alive to a classroom of young students. For this segment, I will elaborate on how we do this right here at Imperial Academy of Edmund in the kindergarten through second grade general music class that I teach nearly every day of the school week. Most of our curriculum is centered around the fundamental units of music. We spend about three months on rhythm, about the same on pitch, and the remainder of the year on the instruments of the orchestra, as well as some other miscellaneous elements of music. Interspersed throughout those months, though, we depart from these elements of music to discuss the great composers of history. In the classroom, on one wall, I have a spot for our Composer of the Month. Anywhere from three to eight days out of the month, we will spend time in class discussing this composer and doing various activities associated with the composer. In every Composer of the Month spot is a poster that contains the following things. A portrait of the composer, a list of about four famous pieces, a picture of the composer's country of birth, or where the composer was raised, some other significant fact, and then also, under the portrait, the years of the composer's life. Now, all the composers we discuss are dead, at least the ones we've used so far, and I realized early on in teaching these, when giving those years of the composer's life, those numbers are hard to relate to the minds of a five- to seven-year-old child. But there are ways we can make composers come alive. First, with the dates, I try to relate those years to some significant historical event that they may already know or may be learning about in school. Secondly, even though the composers have long been dead, I tell the class that these composers were children at one point. Some composers had extremely eventful childhoods, and so I stress that for sure. So I'll spend about a 30-minute class period introducing the young class to everything on the poster and playing relevant examples. Later in the month, there are other activities that we will do in other class periods. Again, these interrupt our usual music elements curriculum, so we can learn these important components of music history. These activities include a variety of different things. It might be a video. Uh, For Mozart, I show select scenes from the colorful opera The Magic Flute. For Beethoven, we spend a couple of days watching the children's movie Beethoven Lives Upstairs. For Copland, I show a black-and-white video of Martha Graham dancing her own production of Copland's Appalachian Spring. We also have coloring activities. For Vivaldi, I've made a small coloring book with pictures and the poems upon which Vivaldi based each movement of his four seasons. For Prokofiev, I've made a coloring book with pictures that help describe the instruments and story of Peter and the Wolf. For Copland, we color another book about his work, Lincoln Portrait, while listening to a recording of the work. And with almost every composer I've selected as a composer of the month, there is a book by author and illustrator Mike Venezia, 
Ever since I found these, I've made these a core element of our Composer of the Month discussions, and we spend about two or three class periods on one of these books. Each book's back cover explains that Mike is a graduate of the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, and that, quote, Mike believes the best way to introduce children to music and composers is through fun. If children can learn about music in a fun way and think of composers as real people, the exciting world of music will be open to them for the rest of their lives, unquote. Mike has done this with composers far back in standard music history, like Bach and Beethoven, and even more recent ones, like Gershwin and Bernstein. Each book is not only written in language for kids to understand, making these composers' histories relevant. Each book is also complete with historical photos of the composers, pertinent landmarks, and most importantly, little comics that describe certain scenarios in the text. These are the hit of the book when I read these to my classes, and they really help change what might otherwise be considered some old dead guy, and turning him into a real person who had a childhood and a life that any kid can relate to. This has been Classroom Corner. You are listening to Music for Life. I'm your host, Ryan Malone. This is KPCG. Today we have been exploring compositions inspired by the most certain thing in life, death. Compositions written in memory of the deceased or compositions inspired by death in general. An episode of Music for Life that I've cheekily titled Music for Death. Hopefully it has been a surprisingly stirring and even uplifting episode with all these compositions. We have heard not just requiems or funeral marches from larger compositions, but a variety of sobering music and also some inspiring music that was meant to stir the listener about what lies beyond human existence. Finally, let's have our dessert for today, where we hear an example from the popular or folk tradition to end the program. In New Orleans, Louisiana, there's a tradition of having a Dixieland band play at the gravesite and in the funeral processions through the streets. During the march, the band plays somber songs and hymns, but after the members of the procession have said their final farewells, the music of this Dixieland band becomes more upbeat, as the music is intended to be a celebration of life. This exact thing is depicted in the 1973 James Bond movie, Live and Let Die. So let's hear this short Dixieland band movement from that film's soundtrack for dessert today. You have been listening to Music for Life, a production of KPCG 101.3 on the FM dial in Edmond, Oklahoma. From the Herbert W. Armstrong College campus, I'm Ryan Malone. Thanks for joining me. Thank you.